0: All right, turn to First Peter. Uh, I've started a study in First Peter, and so that's where we uh, land this evening as I have an opportunity and uh, privilege and a uh, daunting task of opening up the, the Word of God before you this evening. And we'll be looking really just at the introduction of, of Peter's work here. But before we get into that, just to give a little bit of background of the of the book, as it's always helpful in kind of developing out uh, the thoughts, uh, written by the the apostle Peter, as is indicated in uh, verse one, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So this is the apostle Peter. He is writing, and this letter he is writing as as um, a pastor. He identifies himself as as an elder later on in this book, but he is writing to those that he knows of or those that he directly knows. He's writing to them in a pastoral sense to give them uh, comfort, to give them uh, hope. And he develops a lot of those different uh, themes throughout. This is probably written... Uh, somewhere in around 62 to 64. It's commonly believed that uh, Peter was martyred under the reign of, of Nero, and that would have been about 64, is what they commonly think. So he wrote it sometime before 64. Um, and to give a little bit more context, in Acts chapter 15, where you have the, uh, the Jerusalem council, that's probably around 49. And then when he's back in Jerusalem after meeting with Paul, Paul says 14 years later he met with Peter. Uh, that's probably around 56, 57, so he wrote uh, late in his life. This, this letter is written. The audience is uh, believers, and as you, as you look through the book, um, there seems to be indication that the, the majority of the people that he write he's writing to are, are Gentiles that are believers, that have become believers. And, and most commentators say this, and you can see it in a couple of the verses that, that come about, and I'll, I'll just read them, and it's First uh, 1 Peter 1.14. He says, As obedient children, not being conformed to the former lusts which were yours and your ignorance, uh, typically a statement that would be applied to, to Gentiles more than to people of a Jewish background. First uh, 1 Peter 1.18, Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your futile conduct inherited from your forefathers. So again, sounding like they're a Gentile background. And then in chapter 4, uh, verses 3 and 4, he writes this, uh, For the time already is past is sufficient for you to have worked out the desires of the Gentiles. So uh, It's commonly believed that they are uh, Gentile believers that he is writing to. Uh, he gives us the location of where these believers are in verse one, uh, in the, in the introduction, he says, "Those who uh, so back to First Peter one verse one. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect, exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father." and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and the sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So you can see the audience of who he's writing to there. It's in those, uh, those general regions, and I, I won't spend much time developing that. It's just those are commonly thought to be uh, providential uh, designations, and you're basically looking at the area, area of Asia Minor. If you look in chapter 5, it says where he's writing from. He says he's writing from Babylon. And I, I won't spend time developing this, this either. As, uh, some, some commentators say that's just straight up from Babylon. That's where he's writing from. We don't have any other record of him being there outside of what, what we have here. Uh, others think that he is using it as a, as a designation for Rome. And there's, there's reasons that that's valid because you, you kind of see that Babylon is a, is a title that's given to just general idolatrous uh, wickedness uh, throughout the scriptures. So um, those are the two basic ideas of where he's writing from, Rome or Babylon. Uh, neither of those really changes how you work your way through the book. And then why did Peter write this book? And this is... A, this is a, a very helpful thing. It's also it's, it's, it's always nice when we have a, a writer tell us the purpose of writing his book. Uh, John does it, tells us why he writes the Gospel of John, and Peter tells us why he's writing this in chapter 5. So if you turn to chapter 5, verse 12, he gives us why he is writing this book. So chapter 5, verse 12. He's going to put out there why, why he is writing this book, what his theme is, what he is driving at. And he writes this uh, by Sylvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him. I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring, "This is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it." So there, his 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 theme, his reason for writing this book, his reason for writing this book is to encourage them to stand firm. And he says, stand firm. And what specifically does he say? He says, this is the grace of God, stand firm in it. And so throughout the book, he's going to develop the grace of God, the idea of the grace of God, and how we can stand firm in that grace. Now, part of understanding who this this audience is that he's writing to, you can pick up through reading through the book, and there's another theme that comes out in the book, and the theme is that of suffering. So the individuals that he's writing to, they're, they're suffering under various different uh, circumstances. Some of it you can see right in how they are identified. They are identified as exiles that are scattered, or uh, the ESV has uh, those in the uh, dispersion. And that's used... That's used elsewhere in the New Testament. It's used, by, it's used by Luke, talking about the persecution that took place after the stoning of Stephen. They were scattered. Uh, and it's used also by James in his introduction where he talks, he talks about his, his writing is writing to those who are in dispersion, those who are also experiencing uh, various trials for their belief. So he's writing to these, these individuals who are in exile, they have been forced out of the country that they were originally from. They've wound up in these other countries, and they have experienced persecution. And the theme of persecution runs throughout, and we can see that theme in, in every chapter. So we'll, we'll hit on these really quick, and then we will start our way through, through the particular letter here, this introduction. So if you look at uh, 1 Peter verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 6... He says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. First Peter chapter 2, 19 to twenty-three. So first Peter two, nineteen to twenty-three, for this finds favor if you if for the sake of conscience toward God a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unrighteously for what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated you endure it but when you do good and suffer for it you endure this finds favor with god for to this you have been called since christ also suffered for you leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps who did no sin nor was any deceit found in his mouth who being reviled was not reviling in return while suffering he was uttering no threats but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously chapter 3 and verses 16 and 17 so chapter 3 16 and 17 we have this having a good conscience so that in the things in which you are slandered those who despaired your good conduct in christ will be put to shame, for it is better if, you should, if God should will it so that you should suffer for doing good rather than for doing wrong. And then in chapter 4, verses 12 to 14, 4, Chapter 4, 12 to 14, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you are sharing the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of the glory of God rests on you. And then in chapter 5, one more. Chapter 5, verse 10. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all peace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, strengthen, confirm, and ground you. To him be might forever and ever. Amen. So I wanted to just go through all those because that is a major theme that he is developing throughout the book. His main purpose, his main drive is, again, it's that, that idea of this is the grace of God, stand firm in it. And he's asking them to stand firm and who God is in the grace of God because they're in the midst of struggles, of suffering. Again, they're, they're scattered. They're likely scattered for their, their faith. Uh, they're not in their, their homeland. Uh, it's believed that the book of Hebrews was written roughly the same time as this book, and in the book of Hebrews, we see the persecution that's happening there, whereas, whereas um, the believers in that book we see that their houses are actually being taken by force. So some of these people might be in that same position, that because of their faith they were losing land, they were losing property, they were getting um, pushed out because of their faith, because of their willingness uh, to stand for truth, to follow Christ. And so Peter in his, his pastoral Way he's bringing to them a message that they they need to hear. They need to be reminded of the grace of God. And as we were talking a little bit tonight, I was thinking about how how personal God's grace is. Right? It's not. We think of God. We we were just talking about that idea of sovereignty. How we can see that as a thing that is long long away and far off. But when we talk about God's sovereign grace, we're talking about something that's very unique very individual, very personal. It is a way that God deals with each one of us in the way that we need. And we can see that, uh, you know, as we read throughout the scriptures, we can see how God, in His mercy, in His grace, in His kindness, how He deals with each individual uh, according to what they need. We see how the grace of God operated in the life of Paul when Paul said, "You know, Lord, can you take this thorn away from me? And he says, my grace is sufficient. And we can see in the lives of others that God uh, brings about victory and still His grace is sufficient. So these believers here are being reminded of the grace of God. They're being reminded of all that God has done for them in their lives. They're being reminded of this personal relationship that they have with God. Really the first encouragement that we can see that Peter brings about is he points out to them that they are exiles. I don't think he's so much uh, bringing out the idea that they are not those that are in their their homelands, because he brings that on the idea of of scattered abroad because of persecution. But I believe he's he's reminding them that their citizenship is not of this world. He brings it up in chapter 2. He reminds them as sojourners of how they should conduct themselves. So he's bringing out that idea of sojourners in the sense that they are not of this world, this is not where their citizenship lies, and that they have a future hope of being with the Lord where their true citizenship lies. So these individuals, are experiencing various trials because of their faith and you know, just like uh, uh, Tim hit upon this morning, it's it's very hard not to make the, make the, the connection uh, to what our world is like today, to the difficulties that are our, in our world. Uh, these individuals were experiencing these trials because of their willingness to stand for what was true, because of their desire to follow Christ, and they experienced great loss because of that. And I think the world we live in today that... You know that type of um, judgment, or not judgment. That type of uh, mistreatment, that type of difficulty is is on the horizon. Uh, we we know that it's happened in some places, uh, even places that are close. It's certainly you hear of it happening in more uh, urban areas. So the message that that Paul had or Peter has for these these exiles, these individuals that are scattered abroad that are under these various trials, the message that he has for them about the grace of God, which he writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, right? It's the exact message that they need to hear. Uh, it is also happens to be the exact message that we would need to hear, the message of the grace of God and what God has done. So we too need this message from the Apostle, this message of of comfort, this message of reminding us of the glorious grace of God, the message of reminding us of our rock-solid security that we have in our position in Christ. So he writes that we, we might have confidence, that we might have hope, that we might be settled in what is going on in our lives because we have an understanding of who God is and how God is involved in our lives. And all this, he brings about the point that he, he calls the readers to stand firm. So stand firm. Stand for truth. Remember all that God has done. Remember who God is. Remember the grace of God. And that's how he starts his letter off here—he—he he gets right into it really, really quickly. Here, uh, gets into deep theological truths, but it's all for the purpose of developing the grace of God in their lives. That—that that idea that God is—is is personal, that God is concerned about them, and then we have him develop this this great section on God's grace and who God is, and then it's. Later on, we see how personal he brings it in that, you know, it's Peter who writes, um, cast all your cares upon him for he cares for you. Chapter, chapter 5, I didn't say that right, but it's chapter 5, verse 7. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So it is a, a God who is, is, is near to those that are his, that cares And this is what he is reminding them of in the midst of all that they are going through. In the ESV, the ESV has the... uh, That's what I'm using here. The ESV has the word order a little bit um, closer to the, the, the original. And if you look at how these individuals are addressed, he says, to those who are elect. Uh, Some translations have that pushed down further to make it uh, flow a little bit better in the English. Peter front loads that word there, and then the three prepositional phrases that follow all modify that idea of those who are elect. So the, the prepositional phrase, according to foreknowledge, of God our Father in the sanctification of the Spirit and for obedience to Jesus Christ and the sprinkling of his blood. All three of those modify the idea of chosen. He begins with this idea of, of elect, again, because he is, he's zeroing in on the idea of God's grace. And so election for, for many is a, is a very uh, hated doctrine. People don't like the doctrine. And for many, election is one of the most comforting doctrines. And Peter certainly leans toward the, the latter, and that's why he begins with it here. He begins with this idea of election because he's trying to comfort them. He's trying to remind them of their position in God. So he begins with this idea of election. He says those who are elect or those who are chosen. And then he's going to develop what what that that means as we walk through the text. So I I won't spend a whole lot of time uh, defining that right here, but I'll give just enough so that we have a, a working definition, and then he's going to develop it because each of those prepositions is going to add a little bit more, uh, those prepositional phrases are going to add a little bit more to what he is actually uh, developing here. So the idea of election, election is that great sovereign work of God which took place before the foundation of the world. Uh, we learned that in Ephesians. Which is not contingent upon our work, our works, our worth, "...or even our will, but according to God's unfathomable love, grace, loving-kindness, and it is to the praise of His glory, whereby, according to His own pleasure, He is determined to set His special covenant love upon certain unworthy individuals." So that's just kind of a quick little definition to, to work with as we, we go through this section but the idea of, of election is one of those doctrines of grace, right? It is, it is all of God. It is not of us. It is not by works. It is not something that, uh, that we merited. And so he begins with this idea of God's grace, again, to bring them comfort in the midst of the trials that they are going through. He focuses on this, this profound truth to create this picture, uh, really a preeminent picture of God's grace and to give them that, that solid foundation, that solid foundation of truth that they can stand upon. Again, he's, he's saying, this is the grace of God, stand firm. And he's developing the idea of what the grace of God is. So as we go through the the rest of this passage, we're going to look at, um, I said there's three prepositional phrases that define it, but I broke it up into four because the second one is, is, or the third one's compound. But there's four different aspects of God's divine grace that's demonstrated in election. And again, this is that, that foundation that he is building from them, for them, and for us so that we can see that personal relationship that we have with God so that in the midst of struggles and difficulties and trials we can run to God, we can turn to God because God is intimately acquainted with us because He has done what is necessary so that He can have a relationship with us. So the four aspects of God's Divine grace demonstrated in election. The first one is we, we see the, the standard. And that's in verse 2. And the standard is according to foreknowledge of God the Father. And just as a side note, as we go through these, uh, you probably pick up on that it's a very Trinitarian thing. Uh, it's according to the foreknowledge of God in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and the sprinkling of His blood, so it's a very Trinitarian thing. We see uh, each person of the Trinity involved in this this work of grace. So, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, uh, this term uh, is a term that needs some defining. It's a term that gets often confused. Uh, sometimes it is confused with the idea of foresight, meaning that God has looked down through time to see who would believe, and then he chose them. Um, but the word uh, foreknowledge is a word that is a term that is uh, it's relational, and it has the idea of intentionality with it. And we'll see... We'll see that as we continue on through that it is not a term of God seeing what's going to happen. It's not a, a term that des- describes God reacting. It's a term that's used to describe God's action. So it is not any way based on the decision of the one cho- chosen. It does not mean that God saw that an individual would believe. Again, that's, that's foresight. But it is based on God's predetermined purpose. This predetermined purpose is all of grace, which is why Peter is using this to encourage these believers. Right? He's not saying that God looked and saw that you were going to believe. He's saying, no, God worked in such a way that prior to creation he had determined that he would have a relationship with you and that he would Set his special covenantal saving love upon you we'll look at a couple of passages that will help uh, help define what what foreknowledge is and I think uh, you know and some of the other problems with with the, the definition of of seeing it as foresight uh, you know some of the, the the problems with that is if if we see it as foresight that puts uh, man in control, right? Man's in control in that, that position. Uh, if it's if it's foresight, it is no longer lines up with the notion of not of works, and it doesn't align with the concept of grace. Peter uses this uh, same term uh, further on down in the passage. If you look at First Peter, verse one. uh, Chapter 1, sorry, uh, 17 to 20, he uses this term again. And when he uses this term here, again, for foreknowledge, we we get the idea that it has to do more with God's uh, predetermination rather than what God sees is going to happen. So it's according to a predetermined plan, plan that God carries out in time. So we'll see that when he uses it here, in this, uh, this section here. So if you look at 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, starting in verse 17. And if you address, as father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear and trembling during your sojourn, knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your futile conduct inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but appeared in these last times for your sake. So the concept of foresight doesn't—you know—the concept of foresight would not work with how He's using it there. He didn't look down to—you know—look down through time to see that, you know, uh, that Jesus would be a good Savior. It was predetermined before the foundation of the world that He would be the Savior, and that it came about in time. So the prior knowledge is based on the predetermination of God to carry out His plan. So again, the idea for a believer here is that it is God's predetermination to have His special saving love upon us. You can look also in Romans, and I have it in my notes here so you don't have to turn there. Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 30, we see... Uh, Paul develops, um, it's been referred to as the golden chain, but it's really a a chain of of salvation, how God has worked it out. And we know for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who, who, who are called according to his purpose, because those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. So he, he carries forth his plan in time, and uh, foreknowledge is part of that plan. And we also see um, it's used in the book of Acts, and again I have that in my notes here, so you don't have to turn there, so this is Acts chapter 2, verses 22 and 23. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God, with miracles and wonders and signs which God did through him, in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of lawless men and put him to death. So he couples together, the, uh, Luke couples together there, the, the ideas of, of predetermination and foreknowledge. So it is, it is God's plan unfolding. So then, the idea of foreknowledge is anchored in the sovereignty of God. It is an aspect of God's sovereign grace. We can see from the the passages that we looked at that it is God's purpose that precedes this foreknowledge. This can be seen in the Romans passage. It can also be seen in the, the passage that we just looked at in Acts. Foreknowledge is not a reaction by God, but it is a predetermined action. And and also we see that no individual can respond in such a way or move in such a way that they can affect or cause God uh, to make a choice. And I say that because what Paul says, for by grace you are saved. So it's nothing that, that we do. Uh, one of the theological books I looked at basically um, summed it up this way. It says, The data of God's advanced foreknowledge originates in advanced planning, not in advanced information. Uh, I like how he sums that up. I think it's pretty succinct. But this sums it up that it's not based on information. It's based on God's plan. So their election is according to the foreknowledge of God, those who believe, those that are saved, uh, that is the same that is true for us, that is according to God's foreknowledge. It is according to God's predetermined plan that He would have a relationship with us, that He would set upon us His saving love. And again, the idea here is to bring these individuals comfort that are in the midst of their struggling. If God so determined before we existed that He would set His love upon us, that He would save us, that He would give us new life, then in the midst of all our struggles, everything else, like Paul says, is light momentary affliction. Right? When we consider the great weight of all that God has done, the weight of removing our sin, the weight of making it so that we could stand before His presence, if you consider all that, if you consider that God has taken care of that greatest need that we have, then any other thing that comes along in life is, is small in comparison. So he's calling them and, and imploring them to remember all that God has done for them, that God has chosen them, that God has chosen them according to His foreknowledge. Well, I won't uh, I won't labor that that point anymore, uh, according to foreknowledge. But again, to keep in mind that we are talking about God's grace, His character, His his nearness, his closeness to us. Sometimes in our struggle, we might be thinking when we hear those things, we might be thinking in our minds, uh, we might say, you know, wait, you don't know my situation or you don't know my circumstances. And that that might be true. That's probably quite right. But I know that the sovereign God does. And he has demonstrated his unconditional love towards us and his son. He has also declared uh, to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. And we also know from the writer of Hebrews, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that, may we, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. So he's calling them to remember God's glorious grace in their lives. And in the midst of these struggles, God says, my grace is sufficient. God says, come to the throne of grace. Come through Christ to the throne of grace. So foreknowledge, it magnifies the sovereignty of God. It magnifies God's love. God has, according to his own pleasure, chose to express his saving love towards those who in all reality are not worthy of love, are not lovable, and are unlovely but God has demonstrated his great love and poured his grace out on us. I think sometimes when we hear these doctrines, we might say that's unfair. We might say, you know, why not them? But I think when we really understand who we are and who God is, the only correct conclusion that we should come to is, why me? Why has God poured out his grace on me? Why has God shown his love toward me? Thinking again on Peter's thematic verse, this is the true grace of of God, stand in it. What comfort we have in this truth, we are secure by God, by God's grace that He has lavished upon us. Next, Peter is going to hit the hit the sphere of this grace. And we see that it is in the sanctification of the Spirit. This idea of sanctification in the Spirit is not that continuous work of the Spirit in our lives, that that idea of progressive sanctification, that idea of the Spirit making us more like Christ. It's not that particular idea that he has in mind. He has in mind that, that that... that one-time event of, of setting us apart, of making us holy. I think we can think of it along the lines of its, uh, its, its conversion, its new birth, its salvation. So that is the sanctifying work of the Spirit. That work of the Spirit in which He identifies us and unites, or not identifies, unites us with Christ. So that we are united with Christ in His death and resurrection. And by foreknowledge, Peter is focusing in on the time before the world began, before creation. And then when he hits this idea of sanctification in the Spirit, he is hitting that point in time. And I think uh, to to help understand this a little bit, I I ask myself the question, uh, how long have I been elect? And we know the answer is before the foundation of the world. And then I could ask myself the question, how long have I been saved? And I have been saved, I have been a believer since that point in time that the Spirit so worked in my life that I came to repentance and faith and had a desire to follow Christ. So he's hitting those two aspects. He's hitting that aspect of before time and then he's hitting that aspect of in time. So we are elect to salvation is what he's saying here. We are elect to be set apart by the work of the Spirit. This again is nothing less than the grace of God in our lives. God has poured His grace out upon us because we did not deserve this, we did not want this, we did not merit this, but God determined by His loving kindness and His grace that we would be set apart for the, by the Spirit to new life. So this is the aspect of our salvation that is the reality of in time. And it is the work done by the Holy Spirit. I like what Paul writes in Titus uh, chapter 3 verses 5 to 7. He writes this, He saved us not by works which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, through the washing of the regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Christ Jesus our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So we are elect in the... uh, the reason I call it sphere is, is really the prepositional construction. When you try to categorize preposition, it's called sphere. So that's why I called it that. So it's really the, the realm. I, I couldn't think of anything better than that. So it's really the, it's really the realm of, of our election. It's what realm is it in, and it's in the realm of new life. It's in that sphere of new life conversion, of being made new. So, God, in His grace, in His sovereign election, has brought us to new life. In the third, again, there's only three prepositions, but I broke this one up. In the third, we really have uh, a result. And this is, uh, this is probably one of the, the more difficult portions in this particular uh, section. And one commentator wrote this, and I, I thought it was kind of funny, so I, I wrote it down. He says, the, fr- the third phrase admits to no easy understanding. So, and I, uh, I would say that testimony is true. It is, it's difficult to work through that, and you can consult all kinds of different uh, commentators and different translations, And it's a a very difficult section to understand exactly what he is driving at. But I'll try to walk you through how I landed where I did. But first, to just look at a couple of different translations to kind of help us understand uh, the flavor of how this could be dealt with. So the New American Standard says, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. The King James says, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. The LSV is basically going to be like the New American Standard, but to obedience of Jesus Christ and the sprinkling of his blood. The ESV says, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. Uh, Young's has, to obedience and a sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. The NIV has, um, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood and uh, Kenneth West has kind of an expanded translation that sometimes, in, in difficult situations, if you look at the you know difficult sections, if you look at how he expands it out, it's quite helpful. And he put this resulting in obedience of faith, and this resulting in the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. And a number of the different commentators that I that I read through, uh, they translate it along the lines of for obedience and the sprinkling with the blood of Jesus Christ. So, hopefully that didn't confuse you there, because the point is that different phrases in that jump around in different positions. So, is, it, is he saying it's unto obedience um, to Jesus Christ, or is it a sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ? And the difficulty is that where does that where does jesus christ fit into that grammatically so that's the that's the difficulty that is in there and some of the translations they will use jesus christ twice when they use the word his they're referring back to christ that word isn't there but they're referring back to christ so they try to translate it and clarify but they're using they're using the same word twice in two different ways so it makes it makes it very difficult so anyways now that I've established that it's confusing let's unravel that so these are uh, the various types of translations it's not due to any particular variant or anything like that it's most uh, manuscripts we have have basically the same thing uh, it's syntactically it's, it's very hard and basically every translation has to make a decision on how to do it and which direction that they go. So here's where I fell. So though the idea of obedience to Christ is certainly throughout this passage, he certainly develops that, certainly as part of God's plan of salvation is that we obey Christ. And it's generally true. I believe the point that Peter is making is this that we are elect to believe the gospel. So it's, it's more along the lines of the translation that says for obedience or unto obedience rather than unto obedience of Jesus Christ, just unto obedience. And I say this because without getting into any of the, the, the grammatical uh, nuances, which, again, it's, it's, it's confusing, so people have to make decisions on where to go. Um, I thought it best to just look at a few passages on how Peter uses a similar phrase. So I have these in my notes here. First uh, Peter 2.8, and he says this, A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, for they stumble because they are disobedient to the word. First Peter to 3 In the same way, you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word... They may not. They may be won without a word, by the behavior of their wives. Uh, First Peter four seven. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God, and if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? So there's a number of times that that Peter in this book uses the idea of obedience to the gospel, or obedience as a general term to distinguish between those who are believers and those who are not. So disobedience to the gospel, disobedience to the word, uh, those phrases are used by Peter in this book to just be a general um, way of distinguishing between those who believe and those who do not believe. And I think he's using it the same way here so that the, the understanding that he is bringing forward is that we are elect to obedience. And that is obedience to the gospel, to believe the gospel. Which also fits kind of with the progression that he's going through. He starts with before creation, then in time the Spirit works within us and the Spirit works within us that we believe. So we are elect to believe the gospel. Uh, Paul uses it the same way as well in Romans chapter one he says, uh, "Through whom you have received grace and apost- uh, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles. so he 's using it in kind of that same sense the obedience of faith that idea of that general idea of obedience to gospel the gospel again i don 't think that the, the idea of Obeying Christ is, is removed from this passage as he's going to develop that. But I think the specific point that he is making here is that it is obedience to the gospel. And what does obedience to the, the gospel look like as you look through the, the book of Acts? It looks like uh, repent, believe, and follow Jesus. Repent, believe and be baptized. That's what obedience looks like as you, as you study through the sermons in the book of Acts. Um, the message that, you know, that, that even Peter would bring forward is repent and believe. That's obedience to the gospel. The second phrase is um, even more difficult than the first. For the sprinkling with his blood. Or the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. So it's an unusual term that he is using here. And if you're taking notes or following along, this one I call the the reality, and this is unto, unto purification. So we started, and the previous one was the result, which is unto obedience, so this is the reality, and I call this one unto purification. So Peter is pulling out a, a term. I believe that he is pulling out a term here that brings us back to uh, the book of Exodus. This idea of sprinkling of blood—it only uh, <coughs> excuse me—it only occurs a few times in the New Testament. Uh, here, in the writer of Hebrews uses the terminology, and both of the times that the writer of Hebrews brings it up, he's referring back to Exodus. And I think what he is, he is bringing them back to recall is the first covenant. Because it's under the first covenant that the people are sprinkled. So in Exodus chapter 24... Uh, verses 3 to 8, I think he's referring back to this when he's talking about the sprinkling of blood. And we read that Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. He took the book of the covenant, and he read from it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and he said, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So I think he's bringing them back to that idea of the, the old covenant. That you see that the, the law was brought to the people. Uh, Moses sprinkled the blood on the altar. He sprinkled the blood on the people and the people said, We will do all, the, all that you say. And as we read through what the writer of Hebrews writes, we know that there was a need for a new covenant, and he says it's a new covenant on better promises. And so the writer of Hebrews hits on this same theme, and he writes this, um, For if the blood and goats and bulls and the ashes of heifer, heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of flesh, How much more will the blood of Christ, through whom the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? For this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of eternal life. And then I'll jump down a little bit uh, in verse 19. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people, according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels, of the ministry with the blood, and according to the law, one might almost say all things are cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So notice the 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 connection that the writer of Hebrews makes to, to Exodus, and how he, he works in the idea of of the new covenant. Uh, both required sacrifice. Both uh, had death. Under the first covenant, the people would, people said that they would obey, that they would be faithful to do all that the Lord had said. But under the second covenant, we have a perfect once-for-all sacrifice. It is not the faithfulness of the people to obey. It is God's faithfulness. It is the faithfulness of Christ who fulfilled the law. So when we look through those, those two passages, which I think is what, what Peter is alluding to, is we get this idea of consecration and purification. And Peter is reminding them that they are part of this new covenant that God has made. A covenant that is a better covenant. An everlasting covenant. A covenant where the sacrifice is a once-for-all covenant a covenant where there's actually the removal of sin and you don't need the priest going in yearly who has to make sacrifice for himself and then for the people. So I think in, in bringing out this, this idea of this, this sprinkling of blood, again, the, the concept that he's bringing forward is this idea of the grace of God. It is the grace of God in establishing this, this new covenant The covenant that is not based on the people's capacity to obey or the people's promise to obey, but based on the the faithfulness and the grace of God to remove sin, to cleanse, to purify, to make us new. So he's focusing in again on the, the grace of God. Peter ends his his introduction with, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. And this is rather, rather common in New Testament introductions. The only difference here is that, that Peter puts it in what's called the optative mood. So it's more of a prayer or a desire that he has. So this is his prayer for these individuals. And his prayer... Is that grace and peace be granted to them in the fullest measure, that they would be abundantly blessed by God. Uh, grace and peace really en- encompasses that idea, that, that idea of the blessing of God is encompassed in that that term, those terms, grace and peace. So his prayer for them is that grace and peace would be multiplied to them in fullest measure. So again, going back to Peter's main point, his main point in in writing this work is that this is the grace of God. This is what God's grace looks like. This is God's grace expressed to us. This is God's proximity to us. His care for us, and in the midst of their troubles, their trials, the fact that they're in exile, they can trust in who God is. They can trust in God's character. When things get difficult in our lives, where do we turn to for refuge or solace? i thought about this a lot lately in, in People turn to various things. We see it in our world, they'll turn to, you know, substances, sports, whatever it may be. But when things are difficult in our lives, who do we turn to? Do we run to worldly things or do we run to the sovereign God who has taken care of our greatest need, which is to be reconciled to Him? Do we trust in the sovereign God who has manifested His great love to us in His great plan of salvation? Do we run to God who, through His grace, has poured out His special love on us? There may come a time when we are outsiders or outcast for standing for our faith, for our commitment to the Lord Jesus. And as we looked at this morning, we need to remember that it is God who is our stronghold, our refuge, our defense, our sure rock. And here the, the Apostle Peter, as, as a shepherd, reminds us that God will sustain us by His abounding grace. He has already brought us to new life and He has given us citizenship, a true citizenship that is in heaven. So He has dealt with our greatest needs. So He certainly will deal with those needs that are of lesser importance. So by way of reminder, we are chosen by God, by His grace. Uh, The standard is according to His foreknowledge. The sphere is in the sanctifying work of the Spirit. The result is that we are obedient to the Gospel. And the reality is that it is unto purification. So I say along with uh, Peter, and I, I say to myself... Uh, beloved, this is the grace of God. Stand in it. Let's let's pray. Father, we thank you for your your abounding grace, your abundant grace that you have lavished on us. We thank you that uh, you are so good to us. We thank you that uh, in Christ you have taken care of our greatest needs. That you have dealt with us according to Your grace and mercy and, and loving kindness and not in accordance with our sinfulness. Lord, I pray that You would help us as, as individuals to, to truly run to You, uh, to seek You when things are troublesome and even when things are good. That we would seek you because you are not a God that is far off, but you have condescended and you have made made it so that we can boldly approach your throne in Christ, uh, the throne of grace. We thank you for these truths. Pray that you'd help us to live by them. Pray that you'd help us to stand firm for what is true and right. And remember your loving kindness and your grace toward us. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.